News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Once again, Russia and Ukraine have tried to sit down for some kind of talks, this time in Turkey. So what happened this time? Well, it doesn't sound like they went well again. Reggie Cicchini joins us now, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So how did these talks go? Uh, so look, according to Turkish officials, the talks were civilized, but uh, there are still difficulties in trying to get either side to come to terms with either concessions or or an all-out ceasefire. Um, and, you know, we went into these meetings with Ukraine and Russia both saying that this was not going to be the meeting where something was simply going to come to an end. But the fact that these high-level meetings are taking place, well, it's a slow sign of progress, a small sign of progress. It is potentially progress. Potentially. That's a lot of hope, it feels like, riding on that. What has the U.S. had to say about this? Well, so the U.S. you know, has said that, that talks need to continue, diplomacy needs to continue here. But given what we've seen over the last 24 hours, including that bombing uh, through southern Ukraine that impacted a maternity hospital, and we've seen humanitarian corridors shelled for the last several days, uh, the United States uh, is calling for an investigation. Vice President Kamala Harris in Poland today stopped short of calling this a war crime, but said that the United Nations has the ability to carry out uh, a full-throttle investigation here. We're hearing that from leaders uh, around the world saying that Vladimir Putin's actions really need to be uh, uh, kind of put under a spotlight here and he needs to be held accountable. What's important to look at here, Simi, though, is during those talks this morning in Turkey, the Russian foreign minister tried to, you know, settle nerves of other nations saying, look, we have no intentions of invading your country because we haven't invaded Ukraine yet. So you still have revisionist history, revisionist present coming out yeah. of the Kremlin. Yeah, I, that was absolutely startling to read about there. So for the United States, then, what was this whole situation, Reggie, with the transfer of fighter jets from Poland to Ukraine? Because that seemed a little bit confusing. It did, and it shows that there's a potential rift here in NATO while they're trying to work together to push back on the Kremlin, um, that, that they're not working in lockstep with each other. And what we had was Poland say that they were going to transfer their planes, their fighter jets that are a Soviet-era fighter jet, able to be uh, flown by Ukrainian military members. They were going to send those to Germany to a U.S. air base. It caught the Pentagon off guard. The Pentagon said, absolutely not. We are not going to put these on, uh, on American soil uh, to have them flown into Ukraine because the United States says that that could potentially become a red line for Russia, and that potentially puts them in direct conflict with the Kremlin. Uh, you know, it also has to do with the fact that the United States would then have to backfill an order for Poland to get planes, and there's logistical hurdles in there and financial and militaristic hurdles to try and overcome. So while there is, you know, this, this you know, push to try and get something to happen, ultimately, you know, there, there are still you know, uh, uh, you know, avenues that need to be driven down or walked down to try and figure this out, even with Ukraine still saying, look, please do something. Right. And it seems that uh, from looking at the polls, that attitude on this with the American public uh, is changing. They seem more invested now than they were a couple of years or a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and, and this is good news for the Biden administration. Uh, the president himself saw his favorable numbers increase after his State of the Union when foreign policy took the first 15 minutes of what is supposed to be uh, a domestic speech. And that's because this is having an impact on Americans. And the president is really trying to look at America to say things are expensive right now, A, because of inflation, B, because of COVID, but C, because of a global conflict. And it is having an impact on you. And I, as the president, am trying to do everything I can, A, to keep the military off of the ground 
outside of our NATO commitments, and B, I'm doing everything I can to try and lower the price of oil for you uh, in order to make sure that things aren't as expensive. But polling shows that Americans, by and large, in a growing number, plus 60%, are saying, look, we're willing to pay a little bit more here if that's what it's going to take to, to kind of keep democracy in line uh, in Ukraine. So the U.S. is coming together. Even Republicans are standing behind the president right now. That is the one that I cannot believe that when I see that, that they are, they're actually pushing for more. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, there, there was there was a congressional bill with bipartisan support going to vote this week uh, or, or going to vote uh, within the last couple of days uh, that would have put more money in the pockets of the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian military uh, to 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 allow them to push back on this Russian offensive. The president tried to get out ahead of that bill when it came to sanctions on Russia. But the fact that you have Democrats and Republicans working with each other to actively get uh, uh, Russia out of Ukraine uh, shows that, you know, just because there's a political rift when you look at a domestic agenda in one country, it doesn't mean that everybody is kind of looking away from each other when, you know, global rule of order is at risk here. It's old school. That's the way it used to be. I know. It feels like we're going back to that. Reggie, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. So we're going to be talking this morning about BC's public health crisis, not COVID-19, no, our overdose crisis, which years years of talking about it, has not lowered the number of deaths, has not provided any kind of dent in preventing people from dying as a result of these overdoses. Even though, as many people have pointed out, we have the roadmap, we know what we need to do, but we just lack what the will, the ability to make those big changes. Let's talk more about this now. There is this new report that came out. It was a panel of about 26 people, a panel of experts convened by the BC Coroner's Service that essentially dug a little deeper into the circumstances around the more than 6,000 deaths that we have seen from this from 2017 to 2021. Our next guest was on that panel. It's Guy Filicella, a harm reduction advocate, who also, of course, knows of the struggle of overcoming drug addiction. Guy, thanks for being back with us. Hey, thanks for having me, Jimmy. So are you, what do you think about the reception so far that this report has gotten? I mean, the the, the report's, uh, you know, it's great, but it's a roadmap that uh, needs to be followed and, and, and one that, uh, you know, I would hope that the, the government gathers experts to you know, follow the science of what people are saying that needs to be done, or did you just bring us together to, you know, have lunch with each other and not follow the, the guidelines that are that are put out by us? Okay, well, tell me about the roadmap then. What What is this? What do we need to do? Well, we need to find a way to remove people from the illicit drug supply, and the safe supply programs that are in place have just got fundamentally haven't changed. Uh, they've still got so many barriers to access it and also uh, then having to, you know, give up half your life to really go pick up those medications every day, sometimes twice a day. Uh, it just becomes too challenging. And then, um, you know, it's not the, the drugs that people are seeking. So um, that medication or that safer supply doesn't work for somebody. So really what you have to have to understand is that when I hear somebody who uses substance describe what their safer supply is, um, that's what I go with. When you hear, I don't think politicians should be able to say what safe supply is. I think that should be up to the individual that's using. I just think that they have to do more to give people the substances that they're seeking. Okay. And so what would that, what would that kind of system look like? How would that work? Well, I think, you know, the medicalized approach that uh, they keep drumming on is not going to... Um, 
do the job. Like, it's just not going to work. Um, sure, it's going to help a few people, but the majority of people who need access to this can't get it. And so what do they have? What, 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 what health care is that for them? That isn't any. And so they continue to use drugs off the illicit supply. And, you know, eventually, um, you know, we'll succumb to, to overdose. And so we have to have a pathway outside of the medicalized model that gives people access. Look, we've regulated tobacco, we've regulated alcohol, um, you know, and, and so we can regulate um, some of the opioids that, uh, that people are seeking and right. give them access to it. I know that, guys, while there are a lot of doctors who are reluctant, because quite frankly, doctors don't get enough training in how to deal with addictions and pain management and all of those issues. Do you think there are enough doctors who would get on board with this to help be a part of the program? I don't. I don't. I really don't. I mean, um, I, I don't think they want to do it either. I, I talk to doctors all the time and, and um, you know, even the ones that are doing it are, are you know, hamstrung by their own colleges as well. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes that uh, isn't often talked about publicly. But I tell you right now, it's very challenging for a doctor to, you know, have their college, you know, question why they're prescribing certain medications, which you know, can be very intimidating. And doctors have told me that, that it's very intimidating for them and that's their livelihood as well. And so they're caught in this, you know, what do I do mode? And so we just have to take it out of that so that people can get it. And hopefully, you know, that happens. But that sounds like it would start small then, right? You need a few doctors who would do this to show that this is how it's going to work. I don't even think you need a doctor. You don't need a prescription for alcohol, Simi, so you shouldn't need one to grab, like, you know, um, heroin or other substances. Like, it's just, it just really needs to... We need another pathway outside of the medicalized model, and if we don't do that, we're not going to prescribe our way out of this. I can, I can tell you that much. All right, Guy. Listen, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate that. As always, Guy Felicella, harm reduction advocate who also knows about fighting addiction. He did so himself. He was one of the 26 people who were involved in this report that the BC Coroner Service did on how to deal with drug toxicity and all of the overdose deaths that we've had in this province. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you're going to want to keep it tuned in right here to 980 CKNW today because 1230 is when we will hear from Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix, and they are expected to lay out a timeline today for when we will perhaps drop mask mandates, the vaccine card requirement. I mean, these are huge steps that our province is potentially taking today with that timeline. Other provinces have done it already. And for businesses, that means they are watching, they are waiting, they want to know because this is going to make a huge difference to what they do, particularly the restaurant industry. So let's check in with Ian Tossenson, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Hi, Ian. Good morning, Cindy. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. But how are you feeling? Like, what have you heard about today? Well, we haven't heard anything officially, but I think if we look at it from a logical point of view, you know, changes in the wind, you know, and you just mentioned that, you know, all, all around us, you know, Washington State, other provinces, they've moved away from masks and vaccination cards. I was just reading something and talking with my wife, Kathy, about this in the North Shore uh, news there is a study that says about 80% of people, almost 80%, they want to see this move on now and let's move on to the next stage. 
I think Dr. Henry's going to move a little cautiously, and I hope she does. I hope that she kind of puts the BC spin in this one. I, I sort of think, you know, from, from talking to our industry, um, if we had a scenario that masks were gone and we kept the vaccination card uh, for a while, I think that would be ideal. Um, you know, certainly all the built-in safety factors that we're, we're so good at, the industry's been so awesome at, is going to be enough to uh, to get to the re- removal of masks. And people can still wear them if they want. But I think the most important thing, Simi, is just the ability for people to suddenly look at people's facial expressions and emotions and, and the way we convey ourselves. That is going to be so exciting. And I think it's going to really, um, when people see that, I think, you know, and I think they'll see it sooner than later, right. frankly. Um, they'll be so, so pleased about that. So you feel that that would be an acceptable baby step forward then? Remove the mask mandate, but keep the vaccine card program? Yeah, and ease people through this, um, you know, and then eventually we'll come out. I don't, I don't know, like, you know, we originally said June 30th for the vax cards. I don't know that it's going to stay that long. I'd be surprised if it did. And it's all based on. You know, we're taking the guidance from Dr. Henry, but, you know, BC is new at 91% uh, vaccination rates and it's extraordinary. And I think that BC needs to reward itself and, and for all the stuff that it did, but at the same time, do it in a way that that, that's our way, which I think is being a little cautious here. Okay. So it sounds like then the restaurant industry is pretty optimistic. Oh yeah. hundred percent optimistic. I mean, we could live with what we have right now. But, um, you know, I, I think, that we, like I said, the, the people have said it's going to be so awesome to, for people to be able to see faces yeah. and, and, you know, and not have to talk to your eyes. So, um, you know, the built-in, you know, I was kind of laughing. We're not going to be seeing, you know, servers jumping on people's laps and going, hey, it's great to be back. We're going to keep our a natural distance because that's the way we've been sort of brought through this. It's going to be two years, Cindy, I know, on, I can't on March it. 20th. Two years. Uh, yeah, so we're no, we're feeling very optimistic, and we'll find out at twelve thirty. And I, you know, Doctor Henry's, you know, and the premiers have said a few things over the last couple of weeks that she wants to get out the business of health orders. You know that you know we'd like to have some changes coming up for spring break. So I think there's a lot of clues in what we're about to see today. Okay, well that's good then. But what about in terms of the capabilities of restaurants to start going all in now and to get really ramped up and almost, as I say, back to normal? Are restaurants ready to do that? Do they have the staff to do that? No, staff is a huge issue. And so, I mean, we all have to be caring forward, just be kind and be patient. It's going to be so true. I mean, as we start to see uh, um, tourism increase and cruise ships come back in, we're going to be really challenged and we'll deal with some of that through changing of hours and maybe closing on days that aren't so busy, but we are going to be very challenged that way. And, um, you know, we simplified menus. We've done a number of different things too. So, you know, more or less, you're probably not going to see it. It just puts a lot of stress on the people, but the good news is we're starting to see people coming back into the, into the, into the, um, our industry that left because they're seeing the potential to make some good money, some great flexibility, have some fun, revisit their friends, see people's faces. All those different things um, are going to work in our favor to attract. We're going on a campaign to talk to people, social networks, in about two weeks, to talk to mom and dads, get their kids out, and, and hit down to your local restaurant and, and introduce yourself and say, I want to work here. There's jobs. And there, a, the, the learning experience for that person is going to be immense. They're going to learn social skills and discipline and they're going to make some great money and they're going to meet some new friends. And so we're going to go after that really hard and talk to mom and dad. 
And then we're also going uh, hard with the government on making sure that we clear the ways faster for skilled foreign workers because our, our economy needs that. We need, we need them both. So we're going to have some fun with this because we're open now and yeah. we're going to stay open forever as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> let me let me ask, that's positive. Uh, let me ask you this, Ian, then when you see what's happened over the last two years, you talked about two years coming up almost exactly. Does it also show you how resilient the industry is? Herding cats was what the industry was before. And now we're a disciplined uh, industry uh, and we, we could be even more so, but I mean, we can move on a dime um, it's unbelievable the 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 spirit of how uh, restaurant operators were able to I won't say pivot but they changed their business model. We we learn new things. We learn about takeout and delivery, about patios, the importance of all that kind of stuff. Absolutely, totally res- resilient. And I I'm really really proud that the industry um, we didn't shed as much as we bought. When we at times when you and I talk, I was thinking maybe thirty percent of the industry would be gone. They found a way, and it's been. Good, you know, good partnership with the provincial government, the federal government. Everybody chipped in here, so now um, with the economy gonna is going to roar back with tourism and stuff. I think we got a fighting chance. It's not easy for them. A lot of businesses took on a lot of debt in the last couple of years, but if we've got a runway here uh, to continue to operate, we can we can get through that. And so, yeah, I, I mean, we have to celebrate the industry. It's it's been amazing. I think so, too. I know. I'm so impressed by the resiliency that we've seen in businesses out there and people's willingness to say, you know what, I'm going to support your industry. I mean, you've certainly seen that, too. Oh, yeah. And and I think because the industry has been so um, responsive to ensure the health and safety of our guests. I think everybody saw that every restaurant went beyond the call of duty to make sure that, you know, even when you remember we had like, we were times we had no vaccinations, no masks, and we were still operating. I mean, that was way back in the early days. But we have a a restaurant hall of fame that we do every year and we're not doing it this year because how do you pick eight or 10 individuals? (laughs) So we're going to try to do something for the entire industry. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm going to try to enlist the premier, the lieutenant governor, whatever to celebrate and let this industry, you know, pat itself in the hands, take the masks off and shake each other's hands and congratulate each other because they've been absolutely incredible. They really so have. The Ian, yeah. thank you so much. Thanks, Simi. Good luck. That's Ian Tossinson, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. They've got their fingers crossed. They are hoping for some good news, some business boosting news. 12.30 today, you'll hear that press conference live right here on 980 CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. There are still lots of questions about what we are going to do about our public health crisis in this province and the illicit overdoses that we have, the illicit toxic drugs that we've got that are causing so many problems. We've got a new report that came out from the BC's Coroner Service and their expert panel of 26 people who said they put in place a roadmap. Will the government follow it? Joining us now is Sheila Malcolmson, BC's Minister for Mental Health and Addictions. Thank you very much for being here. Morning, Simi. Will you take this roadmap and follow it? We really appreciate the death review panel's confirmation of the urgency of the work and and the pieces that they ask us to do are exactly the work that we are that we have underway expanding access to safe supply to separate people from the increasingly toxic drug supply building out a system of care for mental health and addictions that didn't exist in 2017 just five years ago. We've been working really hard and all the members of the panel are all the people that we're working with, the colleges, the health authorities, 
the addiction medicine doctors, and people with lived experience. So the, the roadmaps are very compatible. The, you know, our question is the timeline. And, uh, you know, we wish that we could work as fast as what the panel has, has said. You know, the work that they've asked us to do are, is work that we've had underway for the whole year and a half that I've been minister and, and before me as well. But we agree with the urgency and we agree with the, with the, the menu that they've given us. It's, it's our menu too. Okay. So then what parts of it need to be sped up, do you think? Like when you look at it, what pieces are still missing? Well, you know, we have been, almost every week, we're adding new elements to the system of mental health and substance use care in British Columbia. We're adding new treatment beds. We've added hundreds already, and we're adding hundreds more. We've been filling the gaps in the stages between detox and treatment, the steps after treatment, because sometimes people do relapse, particularly if if they are discharged to homelessness. You know, there's so many pieces in our whole social safety net that we're working and and adding new supports every week. But it isn't enough, clearly. The terribly increased toxicity of the drug supply, as the coroners noted, going from 4 to 8% fentanyl contamination in the people who died in the months before the pandemic, to 24 to 28% fentanyl contamination in the in the last month of 2021 it's outpaced everything that we've added and so we continue to modify our approach we continue to take on new tools um, and we continue to try to get ahead of the of the terribly illicit contaminated supply um, which is heartbreakingly uh, right. taking so many lives every day. Uh, it is that toxic drug supply that, that is doing all this damage. So I love the mm-hmm. idea that, yes, we're going to help people who need the help and get them off of this, but what are we doing about that drug supply? How are we tackling that issue? Yeah. You know, the Premier talked about this a bit in question period, and he has before, you know, at the at the police action side, you know, trying to nail at the border and and tackling organized crime to be able to tackle the dealers. That's not in my ministry's work, but I know it's a priority of government. The, the, the medical approach that we've been bringing, um, and it was certainly reemphasized in yesterday's report, is prescribing a safe supply to people that are at risk of overdose. We're the only province in the country to do that. We rolled this program out two years ago. We've modified it since last summer. Me and Bonnie Henry stood up and said, here's our next wave. This is what we've learned from the first year of experience, what we heard from clinicians and from people who use drugs. And we've added new drugs and new access points. But still, we really do need doctors to step up and prescribe. Um, it's It's a novel practice. It's not what they learned in medical school, but you know, a lot of them are really taking that leap of faith uh, and nurse practitioners as well. Um, so we're really grateful to the people that are prescribing. But the yesterday's report really highlighted that, that right. we need more people to be able to bring that into their scope of practice. And we're, we're working to support prescribers in that. But that is our, that's, that's our biggest tool that the province has. And, right, and yesterday's report really emphasized that. How do you do that? We were just talking to Guy Felicella about this, and he was on the panel that wrote that report too. And he was saying like, for doctors, this is hard, right? This is not something they're taught. They fear being shunned by other colleagues. They fear like their own college. How do you break that stigma for doctors to be able to do this? Yeah, it's such a key question. You know, and again, some of them are doing it and some of them have led the way. Um, 
you know, I'm really glad that the colleges were represented on the on the panel's report yesterday. We do have more work to do there because we do hear from doctors that that they get mixed messages from their colleges. I meet regularly with them, as does the coroner and and um, Dr. Henry as the public health officer, because it is again a new approach and hasn't happened anywhere else in Canada. So, so BC has been leading the way, but we're learning as we go. Absolutely. We've got a lot of supports built in for the training of doctors and, and a support line so that they've got someone to talk to if they're thinking of prescribing. But it has been a limitation. And that's why this summer I directed every health authority to embed it in all of their programming. So in that case we're not as reliant on the single prescriber, but mm-hmm. more on the team and health authority approach. And, you know, honestly, with the health authorities fighting two public health emergencies and being so, you know, overwhelmed by that work and, you know, that that honestly hasn't happened as fast as we all would have wanted it to. But I'm talking, uh, you know, just even in the last week, talking with the chairs of every health authority and them saying, we see the wave of COVID behind us. We really, really need to refocus our our work on implementing the treatment beds, the safe supply, the detox, the supervised consumption sites right. that they are funded to do. And so we are refocusing. We have to, um, and, and we're determined to do more. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate the conversation. It's a hard one, and, and thanks for the time, Simi. Thank you. That's Sheila Malcolmson, BC Minister for uh, Minister of Mental Health and Addiction. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, this next story is one that has stuck with me for four years. I've often thought about it and wondered, when are we going to see some progress made? Because it was really hard to forget that a 15-year-old boy sitting in the back of a car with his family, driving down Broadway, was shot and killed. An innocent bystander in this awful ongoing gang war that we have in Metro Vancouver. I mean, I've thought about it every single time I have driven that part of Broadway, and that is often. So four years of waiting for an update, and now we have one. So let's check in with Kim Boland, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun, who has been covering this story. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. What is the update here? Well, amazingly, after, pardon me, after four years, a charge has been laid against an Ontario man. He's charged with two counts of second-degree murder, one for killing Alfred Wong that night, January 13th, 2018. And the second charge uh, relates to uh, the death of Kevin Whiteside, who was also shot to death that night. Whiteside, though, was a suspected hitman who had come to kill someone else which actually led to this uh, public shootout. Yes, and let's refresh people's memory if they haven't remembered all the details on this, but this was like a, a busy, this was on Broadway, this was like right outside of a pretty popular place. Very busy at Broadway in Ontario, so just a a block and a bit off of Main Street, very busy intersection, lots of restaurants in that area, coffee shops in that area. It was the evening, and the target of the shooting, a fellow named Matthew Navis Rivas, uh, was in a restaurant that's no longer there, uh, right on Ontario, Indochine, it was called, and uh, Whiteside, who was formerly kind of an associate of his with the Wolfpack gang, uh, had gone there that night on the orders of another Wolfpack member uh, to kill Navis Rivas. He didn't get killed that night, 
but he was shot to death in July of 2018. So he knew he was in danger, and he had brought along uh, this man named Kane Carter, who was charged uh, earlier this week as kind of a bodyguard. And he engaged in the shooting as well, and he's now facing not just the two murder charge, but also an aggravated assault charge and another uh, charge of distar- discharging a firearm with, with intent to injure. Right. And so let's talk about 15-year-old Alfred Wong here, because just driving down the street with his family, that's, I think, what made this one so shocking. So very shocking. I mean, really, it was very fluky and very tragic. And they had been out for dinner uh, with their older son, who was a university student, and uh, the parents and Alfred were returning home to Coquitlam. You know, this young guy was a star student. He was working to become a lifeguard, looked forward to go into going into electronic engineering, and just out enjoying his family. And the bullets were flying across Broadway, and one struck uh, his family's vehicle. It hit him in the back, and in the back seat, and uh, you know he was critically injured and died a couple of days later in hospital. So absolutely devastating. We've seen other uninvolved people uh, wounded and killed in Vancouver's gang conflict, but this one was just so shocking and so fluky, and uh, you know really, as you yeah. said, it left a lot of us pretty stunned. It did. Boy, it really did stay with me. And, you know, the Vancouver police, Kim, it felt like they didn't talk very much about it, but it sounds like yesterday from Chief Palmer, it was also on their minds a lot. Oh, yeah. I think they worked really, really hard on this one, as they do with all their murder cases. I mean, you know, what led to the tragedy was how public the location was, but that also meant there was a lot of video surveillance. Um, you know, it's also problematic when the people involved in the shooting are killed. So Whiteside was clearly a suspect, and he was killed that night. Uh, Matthew Navis Rivas was a suspect, and uh, he was killed a few months later. So I, I did some reporting on this uh, during the investigation, and it seemed like it was going to be very challenging <clears throat> to get charges laid because, you know, two of the key suspects were dead. Uh, but they kept at it, and they identified this third person that they believed was involved in the shooting. Uh, they had investigators in Ontario for long stretches of time, and it led to fruition. This uh, young man, Kane Carter, 26 years old, with not that many connections that we can see to BC, is now facing very serious charges and will appear in court when he's brought back. We know the police feel a lot of pressure when we have these shootings that happen. But Kim, do you think there was more pressure in this case? I do think there's more pressure when there's someone completely uninvolved uh, in, uh, you know, uninvolved who is killed in a shooting like this. Uh, but you know, I, I I have also interviewed police saying that you know, be wrong to think that they treat uh, you know cases differently uh, because uh, you know of uh, who gets killed. They do try and solve all of these cases, but they're very challenging cases to solve because uh, people don't cooperate who have knowledge. People who uh, are involved end up dead, as has happened in this case and has happened in many other cases since this one. Uh, But it was extremely brazen to, you know, I mean, imagine, too, you're opening fire on a busy restaurant, right? I mean, other people could have been killed uh, that were leaving that restaurant. And there was another man who was driving by who also was injured. 
uh, when bullets hit his vehicle, but he wasn't very seriously injured at all. Uh, so there is that's where the aggravated assault right. charge comes in. Was there fallout from that, Kim, among other gangs? Like, what was what were the repercussions of that, given how public it was and how much pressure it must have brought to bear on the gangs that were involved? You know, I can't say that there was. I mean, that's very terrible. You would like to think that they have, you know, some kind of revelation and, and decide that, you know, they're going to cooperate. Uh, but this one was so random. I mean, it wasn't, it was very different than Surrey 6, which is probably our highest profile uh, case where yeah. you had two uninvolved people like dragged into an apartment and shot along with four others. Uh, so in that case, it was very deliberate. I mean, you know, I suppose you could say in this one, it was uh, somewhat accidental or unintentional, but it was still absolutely horrific. And the randomness, I think, was even more shocking to people. Uh, so there's a lot of pressure on police, I think, to solve a lot of these gang shootings. Uh, but for sure, when you have really a child who's lost his life in this horrific way, you know, that's got a way on everyone's mind, as the chief said yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. Kim, thank you. Anytime, Simi. That's Kim Bolin, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun, talking about the uh, charges that have been laid. And this was, it felt like, I think, for a lot of us who were watching this case a long time coming. But the Vancouver Police Department announced yesterday that a man has now been arrested and charged in a double murder, took place in 2018, as Kim just described there for us. This was that shooting that took the life of 15-year-old Alfred Wong. Alfred was struck by a, essentially a stray bullet. He was sitting in the back seat of his parents' car. They were driving down Broadway. He was critically injured. He died days later in hospital. And now there are charges more than four years later in that case. Uh, you have Kane Carter charged with one count of second-degree murder and also uh, a charge in um, the death of 23-year-old Kevin Whiteside, as Kim just described. This is Mornings with Simi. Earlier this morning, we were talking with Ian Tossenson about how the restaurant industry and the bar industry, they are very eager to hear about when more restrictions are going to be lifted, potentially coming at 1230 today. Listen to that live on the Jill Bennett Show. So it sounds like it's going to be happening. So what better time for that industry and for people to celebrate? perhaps with a cocktail. Vancouver is having its first ever cocktail week, and our contributor, Raji Sohal, is here to tell us all about it. Good morning, Raji. Good morning Tough to assignment, me. by okay. the way. Tough assignment. I know, right? <laughs> well, I'm not much of a drinker. I should say that up front. Like, I will have a glass on special occasions. That's it for me. But if I'm going to have a drink... I will go with a cocktail. Thank you very much. And now is a great time to do it because it's Vancouver Cocktail Week and it's their first ever with over 65 events across Vancouver. It's been happening this week, including tonight. They're having a very uh, special event. They've been doing things like seminars on uh, really specific stuff like ice cubes, Simi, who knew, but there are so it's many different ways. Yeah, it's a thing. And uh, different kinds of booze that can go into a, any kind of cocktail. And then some of the world's top bartenders, in fact, three of the world's top bartenders are in the city right now uh, teaching people at these seminars and doing presentations on different drinks. And Vancouver Cocktail Week, like I said, is it's their first time they're doing it. It's being organized by two women entrepreneurs. One of them is Joanne Sesvari, and she's also editor of this really incredible local publication. It's called The Alchemist. It's a magazine here that's devoted just to drinks, to cocktails. And I asked her, does Vancouver really need a cocktail week? 
The city has an amazing collection of super, super talented bartenders. Everybody who works in hospitality has been talking for years about how we have this incredible community and we don't have a cocktail week. And Bellingham has a cocktail week. Victoria has a cocktail week. But we have all these award-winning bartenders and we don't. So... Gail and I were talking, Gail's the publisher of the, of the Alchemist, I'm the editor, and decided that, well, you know what, we should probably just do it ourselves. So we did. And we've been talking about it for a few years now and finally pulled it off. We know how amazing this community is, but I think a lot of other people don't. So in a way, it's to, to raise awareness of these very creative, creative professionals who are creating great drinks, but also creating great hospitality moments. The other reason to have one is... People think of cocktails as just something to um, get a little tipsy on, but what they really are is they're about being social and being part of a community. And I mean, what better way to celebrate than, you know, with a glass in your hand and a little social thing. On top of it, coming out of the pandemic after the last two years, there is nothing better than sitting and talking to people face-to-face and in person right now. Face-to-face and in person right now. We haven't heard that for a while. And yeah, what better way to do it with a cocktail? So tonight, the Vancouver Cocktail Week Gala event is on at the Fairmount Hotel, actually on their roof, uh, that really special venue that uh, has not been open for a while. There's going to be live entertainment, different uh, drink stations, food stations, bartenders uh, there dressed to the nines, ready to serve people, whatever they want. And they're really hoping with this festival, Simi, to uh, promote more of a happy hour culture around cocktails like it exists in other places and on the vancouver cocktail week website they're they're even calling it a sank asset uh that they're trying to promote uh which is also just happy hour but sank asset is something that um is really popular in other cities that like right after work uh you don't go home you you go to a bar and you get a drink not more than that, just a drink and a couple of bites uh, with people and, and to try to make that more of like a social norm here that it happens more. And Joanne from Alchemist told me that one of the reasons it doesn't exist in full fruition here yet in Vancouver is because cocktails sometimes, sometimes they get a bad rep. I think that there is a little bit of a stigma because of some of the terrible cocktails that we've had in the past. And people think that they're still like really boozy, really syrupy, kind of sweet, kind of not fun. But cocktails can be anything from, you know, like a beautiful, elegant martini or Manhattan to something wildly creative, like what the team at the botanist does, which I don't even know. They forage for things and turn them into magic. And right now there is an absolutely massive trend in low and no proof cocktails. So even if you don't drink alcohol, you can still enjoy the experience. That sounds amazing. Yeah, so Simi, that... Yeah, those no-proof ones would be the ones that, uh, yeah, they have no alcohol in them, but they still have these incredible, like, high-quality ingredients. But those bad cocktails were the reason that I never drank cocktails. You know, those gross syrups, overly uh, sweet, and people often just drank them to get drunk. Um, But it's also, Joanne was talking there about the experience, the whole experience of having a cocktail that's really special. And so I never drank cocktails until my friend, um, her husband owns a Prohibition era bar in New York City. And I visited uh, one time, there's no signage outside. You walk through an unmarked door, you sit in a dark booth, the doc, the uh, doctor, I want to say, but the bartender acts like a doctor or a scientist, like just really uh, carefully measuring things, doing things with respect, perfectly measuring and stirring. And what I got that like changed my mind about cocktails was a classic Pisco sour, that's brandy, lime juice, bitters, and an egg white. 
but the bartender shook that egg for a minute, like a whole minute, just to get it perfectly fluffy, the right foam on it. And it was this incredible mix of tart and sweet. And I had no idea that that could be a cocktail even. So that for me changed my whole viewpoint on cocktails. And I started to also like, you know, just appreciate that entire experience. You don't uh, slam a cocktail, you sip it slowly, you appreciate the environment, you are likely to like linger for longer, have more conversation with the people you're with that whole experience of hospitality that even uh, you were talking about earlier with Ian Tostenson on Tostenson on um, our show when he was talking about what people have been missing um, in the service industry. I think the service industry is really eager in Vancouver to provide that again, oh, to absolutely. get people out and, and feeling happy about being in person, that kind of thing. So I have a feeling that a lot of people will be out for cocktails tonight in Vancouver, but a lot more people will be out for cocktails this summer. You know what? I bet people could plan for that. Absolutely, Roger. That was fascinating. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Simi. It's our Raji Sohal talking about Vancouver's first ever cocktail week. And you can also read more about that at The Alchemist. Just check it out online. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been talking this morning about the unacceptably high numbers of people that we lose to drug overdoses in this province. It is the public health emergency that doesn't really get enough attention. And it's tough because it's, you know, you really want people to pay attention to this and understand what's going on out there. And there's actually a part of it that doesn't get a lot that talk, talked about a lot, and that is the impact this is having on women. Uh, for instance, 2021 was the deadliest year on record for overdose deaths of females, actually, in the province of BC. 484 women died of an overdose. That is is a 45% increase over the year before. And here's the thing. Women who seek treatment, particularly in the city of Vancouver, face longer wait times than men who seek treatment. And that means a lot of times women slip back into addiction. So we're going to talk more about that struggle. Joining us this morning is Mike Leland from the Salvation Army, the divisional secretary there. And Christina Petrina is with us to tell us her story. Thank you to both of you for being here. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for having us. Uh, Christina, first of all, let me um, let me say thank you to you for being here. And tell us a bit about your story, Christina. Where did you find yourself? Um, well, you know, like addiction is a slow moving of the lines, right? So it doesn't happen overnight. I was out for 22 years um, in alcohol and cocaine. And I just thought I was born bad and that I that was just my lot in life until I arrived at Salvation Army Women's Treatment Center. And they told me that was wrong, and they gave me tools, and they rebuilt me. And the life is good. You know, it doesn't get any better than the life I'm living now. That's so wonderful to hear. Was it hard for you, though, to find help when you did decide to get some? Well, it wasn't for me. I mean, like, I got in before the opiate crisis, uh, May 3rd of 2009, um, but, you know, it was uh, it's hard to access the treatment now because there's just not enough treatment beds for women. They're marginally lower than what's available for the men. Women are deemed challenging to work with. We have layers of trauma. Um, but it's worth the investment because we become these wonderful, beautiful, full people at the end of the process. That's so nice to hear. Now, Mike, tell me about this. Now, uh, Christina just mentioned like the help that she received was just prior to the uh, opioid crisis that we've had. So how have you seen things change in what you provide? Um, 
Well, I think Christina hits the nail on the head here. The The biggest issue is an issue of access, Simi. And, you know, there's 3,000 plus publicly funded abuse, um, substance abuse and treatment beds for OPC. Less than 60 are available to women. That's less than 2%. And it's just completely unacceptable. So we're trying to raise the level of awareness uh, around this issue. I mean, of the number of people that died last year, close to 80% were men. But that doesn't mean that there's <laughs> we don't give up or we ignore the 20% of the population out there that are women who need help. Um, if you don't have access to treatment, as you mentioned, you, you, know, you slip back into the, the lifestyle. So... You know, over the next two years, the Salvation Army is committed to um, building 22 beds uh, for women living with addiction. Uh, we're creating a new, brand new facility on the downtown east side. It will be open in 2024. And uh, a big part of that, almost an entire third floor, is going to be dedicated to women's treatment only. And they're going to have their own space. Uh, they're going to have their own programs and counseling and services because, as Christina mentioned, uh, they have unique needs different than men. Um, so that's our commitment over the next two years. And uh, we're looking forward to a successful completion, like I said, in 2024. So, Christina, what can we do better then to help women? What can we add into the process or what isn't there that needs to be there? Well, you know, we got to stop the stigma. Like, you know, trauma leads to addiction. I think after a global pandemic, there's some people sitting at home that the intake of alcohol has risen. You know, like it's okay to not be okay. And we got to love people and we got to reach out with compassion. Um, the stigma is a death sentence for people. They do matter. There's a whole beautiful life waiting for them. And we have to start supporting people and not shunning them. And so how, do, how does that happen? How do you do, is it a matter of more beds? Is it more focused on reaching out to women in particular, do you think? Absolutely. These are, you know, some of these women are the only parental figure in their family. And we have to rebuild these families so that their children don't follow the same legacy. Like we have to support these families. They are important. And these women matter. Um, and I know that, you know, they look like they're out of their minds, but that's because of the addiction. The using is only um, a symptom of addiction. It's what's going on on the inside, those core beliefs, all those layers of trauma that we have to support them through to recover and move forward and do great things. Mike, how will that inform the work that the Salvation Army does moving forward? Like if you've seen success with this and think, okay, we clearly need to focus more on individualized help for women. How, how do you do that more moving forward? Well, like I said, I mean, you know, we're, we're committed to building 22 beds for women uh, and really putting a focus on the issue. Um, that's not happening right now, as I mentioned. So for us, it starts with building the space, building the programs that can meet their unique needs that Christina has mentioned several times. Um, and it's essential we do this because, you know, women are central to our families, our communities, our essential services, and they're just critical to the well-being of society. So um, part of this campaign, the Her Story of Hope campaign, this is a start. Like our whole goal with this campaign is to raise awareness about the issues that they're facing, especially the lack of access to services and treatment. Um, so 
It's the first step. Uh, we're on a two-year journey. We're going to continue to uh, build programs that bring awareness to women and the issues they face during addiction. And we're going to hopefully motivate some more people in government to get involved. And like I said, we're going to do our part by building these 22 beds. You know, that's a good point that you make there because we spoke with Sheila Malcolmson, the Minister Responsible of Addictions, earlier on the show, and she was talking about their roadmap and their plan and how they want to open up all of these new spaces for people to get help. Do you see any kind of progress happening like that, Mike? Uh, We do. We do. I mean, people can't avoid it. You can talk to anybody in this province. I'll tell you the number one issue we're facing uh, is a healthcare an opioid crisis and a housing crisis, of course. They sometimes go hand in hand, but uh, I think the government is definitely listening. Uh, we're starting to see more conversations. We're starting to be invited to the table more. So I'm optimistic about the future. Uh, we just got to keep the momentum going. We cannot let, let this slide off our radar. Christina, do you have any advice for people who are thinking about doing this? Like they're not sure if they could reach out. They're not sure if it's going to be the right kind of help for them. Hey, so I always identify myself like I'm a burnt out hooker who lost my hustle and ended up in recovery. So if you're sitting at home and you think you've gone too far in your addiction and there's no hope, I'm living proof. I got cleaned up at 41 and my life is amazing, and it's available to us all, and, and we're going to extend that hand of hope. Christina, you, you make it sound inspirational. You're amazing. Thank you so uh, much well, for thank joining you us. So much. <laughs> That's wonderful. Mike, very quickly before you go, where can people find out more information? Uh, go to herstoryofhope.ca. There's actually a really cool feature there where you can leave your words of encouragement for women living with addiction. We're going to create a really cool art piece. It's going to hang in the Addiction Treatment Center uh, when it's built so women know they're being supported not only internally through the Salvation Army but externally through the community. So herstoryofhope.ca, uh, we have some information there for you. I love it. Okay, Mike, thank you. Thank you, Simi. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Christina. Thank you, Christina. Thanks so much for having us. <laughs> Anytime. We really appreciate it. Loved your story. Christina certainly was inspirational. She's a former addict who said life at 41, has, that's when she got clean, and she's now having the time of her life. Mike Leland, Salvation Army Divisional Secretary, talking about her story of hope.ca. You should check that out.